Welcome to the Maluli Asset Management Podcast. This is episode number 238. We are your hosts, Tom Maluli and Brendan Maluli. First uh, first podcast of the new year. Here we go. Yeah. So, Brendan, you want to kick things off with something that we don't talk about a lot very often, the yellow metal. So, um, over the last couple of weeks, uh, maybe the last month or so, we've seen uh, gold do uh, decently compared to stocks, which is not saying a whole lot because uh, stocks have not been great. One of one of the worst Decembers in history and a, a pretty bad end to the, the fourth quarter of the year. But an article on CNBC last week was talking about um, gold rises as sliding stocks boosts safe, ha- safe haven uh, demand. I kind of have a problem with gold being called a safe haven asset. Uh, because I think that implies negative correlation with the stock market, and that's not really what gold gives you. Just I, to break down, let, break down for a second correlation and what we're talking about. So correlation means it moves something, two bodies move in sync together. Right. So they're moving together. So if uh, stocks and commodities were correlated, they would both move up and move down together. Mm-hmm. If... Uh, something is negatively correlated, it means one side's moving up. It's like a seesaw. One side moving up, the other side moving down. So if stocks and commodities were negatively correlated, that means if stocks are going up, that means commodities are going down. But we've seen over the years that gold can go up Gold is neither of those things. Yeah, gold can go up when stocks go up. Right. Gold can go down. When stocks go down. When stocks go down. Gold can do nothing for a long time. Right. Or it could skyrocket like it did uh, in the early 2000s. I think right. from when GLD, the gold ETF, launched through like 2011 or 2012, it was destroying the S&P 500. But then right. since then, we've seen a complete... Uh, turn of the tables. There was a point where GLD was the largest exchange-traded fund. Yep. Uh, that's just blows my mind every time I think about that. Yeah. And I remember that. Right. But so gold isn't correlated with stocks. It's not negatively correlated with stocks. It's just uncorrelated. And so to say that it's a safe haven, like you alluded to, I think is uh, maybe misleading. Like you need to really understand what uncorrelated means. So it it's not going to always hold up when stocks go down. And I think that that's what safe haven implies when in reality, uh, uncorrelated has its own value. And I think that if you put something that's uncorrelated into a portfolio, the idea is that it's gonna it's gonna uh, follow its own uh, drummer, so to speak, move to the beat of its own drum, and it's not going to do, Anything similar to the other stuff in your portfolio, uh, and that can and that can lower the volatility of of a portfolio overall. But if you're going to sit there like most people do and look at all the individual parts of the portfolio, I think sometimes uncorrelated assets are the ones that drive people the most insane. I'll agree with that because I have owned gold for clients early on in my career, and what typically happens is we get. Uh, we get into a position like that, and uh, six months, a year, 18 months into a situation, 
we get a call from a client and they say, tell me again why we, why we own this. Why did we buy this? Or what are we doing? And uh, we wind up ripping it out of the portfolio. Usually right before it's about to make a move, by the way. Yeah. I, I think another thing that makes gold difficult is that with stocks and bonds, there's some kind of underlying like fundamental topic that you can discuss in terms of like owning a company or a group of companies with stocks. Like they have earnings, they have- There's going to be news at least every 90 days. Right. Right. Like, like they're businesses that generate revenue and employ people and they're a tangible thing. Nobody knows- like, try telling me why gold does what it does. I don't know. Yeah. It's because there's like a ancient belief that this thing has value or it has held value over time. I'm just not sure. Well, the other problem that you get into is that it's not just me and you that are trading gold. There's also nations that get involved with trading gold and trading oil and trading all kinds of different commodities. So there's so many moving parts when it comes to this. There's, it's hard to fundamentally analyze or put a value on something like gold. Right. And I think that if you're talking about like countries, big corporations using things like commodities, they're often doing so in the futures market. And, and, the intention of that originally was to ensure against, like, if you're... Future delivery. Right. right. Like, you, if you produce oil, then you can, like, hedge your exposure so that the price of oil doesn't destroy your business. It wasn't created so that people could gamble on the direction of assets over the short term, which is what it has turned into. Right. Um, and that's all you would be doing in terms of an asset like gold, which right. has no underlying utility whatsoever. So gold has had a pretty good month. Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. Kind of segues into the next bit that we want to talk about. Uh, you know, when people are looking for things that are correlated or uncorrelated or negatively correlated with stocks, the topic of conversation usually turns to bonds. Mm -hmm. And you've come up with some interesting numbers for bonds. What brought my attention to this was a tweet that I saw from Colin Roach over the last couple of days. And basically to just, you know, put uh, my own spin on, on his tweet, I'm not quoting him directly, but he was like, you know, after all the fear mongering in 2018 over interest rates and what they were going to do to bonds, the aggregate bond index finished flat. So right. it was up like one tenth of a percent. And the Fed raised interest rates four times this year after three times last year. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're... It just goes to show, like, if you went, rewind the clocks one year to January of 2018 and tell us then that the Fed is going to hike four times and ask us for a prediction on what that would mean for the aggregate bond index, I think, I think most people would be wrong. Yeah. Because the intuitive thing to say is like, oh, of course, well, rates are going to go up and bond prices must go down. But there's obviously other factors feeding into that uh, in the interim, like the market 
falling out of bed in the fourth quarter. Yeah. Uh, that, that can impact, uh, you know, these, these different bond funds. I mean, hardly catastrophic if you're looking across the category. I, I looked at HYG, which is high yield uh, right. junk bonds, down 2% on the year. Um, TLT, which is the long-term uh, treasury bonds, down 1.6%. Uh, 7- to 10-year uh, U.S. treasury uh, bonds, IEF, up 1%. You know, looking across credit quality and duration, across the spectrum there, ranges from up 1% to down 2%. Again, feeding into the idea that we've discussed on here before, that uh, a bad year for bonds is like a bad afternoon in the stock market. And we've right. seen that be very true over the last month now with yes. stocks moving violently one plus percent multiple days in a row just just over the last week or two here. I think it was nearly every day in December stocks moved more than one percent at seemed, some point during the day. It seemed like it. And uh, if it wasn't, it was close. Right. Uh, but just to say like... You know, if you're getting fear mongered out of your bonds, I mean, not look. Like, I'm not saying everybody should own bonds or that rising rates will never have an impact on returns of the aggregate index. I'm just saying that there was a lot of uh, hand wringing over stuff that ended up not mattering. Yeah, not over the last year for for bond prices and and people who had a 60/40 allocation of the S&P 500 and the aggregate bond index probably didn't make money last year, but you know, I don't think they would have been better off not having the bond piece. It's pretty interesting how um, I think a lot of folks that own this in, say, 60-40 or 70-30 type of portfolios were probably scratching their heads in April, May, June, saying, why do we even have bonds? Yeah, of course. In our portfolio, they're doing nothing. In fact, they're down a little bit. Yeah. Uh, what's up with that? Yeah. And then by the end of the year... Uh, the all these things got back to even. Completely reversed. Stocks had fallen apart. Why do we own any stocks after right. the fourth quarter, after right. that performance, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the narrative totally changed from January through August. Bonds were a cost, and then they weren't. Let me know beforehand when that narrative is going to flip, and, and then we can just be 100% and whatever's working. But yeah. if you can't do that, then you're probably going to have to find some balance between the two of them. Right. Uh, there was an article that we both saw uh, over the weekend in the Wall Street Journal about um, credit card points. Points, uh, a hot topic. There are sites that are literally dedicated to just this topic. I will say that you have to use a lot more points to buy a plane ticket to Florida now. Yeah, uh, and and that's what this post was kind of talking about. It was honing in on rewards credit cards and how some of the big banks that give these rewards out are now backtracking on them or at least second guessing themselves in terms of, you know, the idea was always, you know, offer these rewards and it will lead to ancillary business. Like people will do other things with, with the bank, uh, you know, because they had a card with them. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll, uh, you know, work with, the wealth management arm or they'll get a mortgage through us or all, all these different things. Kind of along the same lines from 30 or 35 years ago when Sears decided it was a good idea to buy Colwell Banker and Dean Wetter and Allstate. Yeah. And, and not really. Yeah. This, I mean, this hasn't been like a 
total dumpster fire for for the banks, but it's it, some of these numbers were pretty crazy. I thought uh, so. The article said that um, as of the third quarter of 2018, rewards costs at big banks like Bank of America, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo were up 15% year over year, uh, and J.P. Morgan cardholders as of the third quarter had accrued $5.8 billion in rewards, which was up 53% from 2016. That's an outrageous jump year yeah. over year. I always, I'm always leery of big numbers like that, like the $5.8 billion, because it sounds like a ton, but then like let's put that into the perspective of JP Morgan and like what they generate right. in revenue over a year. But, but still yeah. uh, a lot of money owed to a lot of people for using credit cards linked uh, to these different big banks. And so the article went on to share some, some different anecdotes about how people have been, you know, quote unquote, like gaming the system or winning uh, in these and the level of detail that, that people have to uh, pay attention to in order to, use these kind of cards to get rewards it was it was kind of astounding to me like i i i think that if people paid half as much attention to uh their cash flows or like the fees of their investment portfolio as they as they do to uh rewards points that they're earning on credit cards then man like i think i think people would be a lot better off in terms of their overall financial situation well we've both heard the the refrain that people will spend weeks and weeks researching where they're going to go on vacation next year but they won't spend a fraction of the time planning their retirement mm -hmm. it's it's totally true and i get that you know uh vacation or the new TV that you want to buy or whatever has like a more immediate payoff. And so it's more fun to research. And it's the same thing with, with this kind of stuff because uh, you're basically researching ways to obtain free money or travel in many instances with right. these rewards, free air quotes, as long as, as long as you're using these things and paying off the balance at the end of the month, which the bank is not counting on. Uh, you can be one of the success stories that this article ended up being about. I think what bothers me above and beyond all of this are the TV commercials where you're asked like, what kind of card do you have? What's in your wallet? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you have a, you, you're using a card that doesn't give you points. Like mm -hmm. you must be an idiot. Yeah. And they just portray this, these actors as having this glamorous life. And really what you're doing is becoming a slave to paying off that debt. Right. Well, it's quite the opposite. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, for what, maybe four or five success stories here about how people are gaming the system and taking free vacations every year, there's probably at least two or three times that uh, in terms of just like horror stories where somebody opened up a, a rewards card and put a bunch of put put their you know big purchase on there and maybe did go on a free trip but then like forgot to pay off the, uh, the thing you know and then and now they're paying interest so yeah um Terrible. the fact that the banks are trying to walk back some of the rewards tells me that they're not as profitable as they thought they would be but i'm sure that there are still people carrying balances month to month on these credit cards that offer rewards and that is where the bank is making their profit i just think that that whole business has to be a big churn. I don't understand enough of the credit card business to even sound remotely like I know what I'm talking about, but there's got to be a fixed amount or uh, that's a bad way to bad phrase to use, but 
there has to be a limit to the amount of credit that's out there and it just gets churned meaning hey we had a bank of america card last year and now we're going for this capital one deal and then we're going to get something from td bank and next year we're going to do this deal with chase and we're just moving from one to the other they're not really growing the business mm -hmm. uh it seems to me like there's some service businesses i think of uh, payroll as an example there's not a whole lot of growth it's just swiping business from somebody else and that's where the growth comes from so i wonder if these um, banks and credit card companies created these reward systems and basically one-upping itself on offering greater rewards to steal some of the asset side of the business that's that's definitely happening and that's uh the article touched on a little bit of that too, in the sense that uh, some of these banks want to walk back some of the offers, but they have seen real life examples of when they take they take the offer away. People really do leave they because do. people are paying attention to this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, which again, back to my point, it's yeah. like, man, if if you're paying that close attention to what different credit cards are offering and the rewards and what their point system translates to in terms of like plane tickets or whatever. I mean, we just hope you're maxing out your 401k for yeah, goodness sakes. Yeah, or like, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, you, you really, you should be fully optimized in terms of uh, other financial uh, decisions you need to make too. I hope you're spending as much time on those things. But well, I, I said this to Brendan before we turned on the microphones, but, you know, when I was a kid growing up, you know, occasionally I'd go food shopping uh, for my parents or with my mom and, Everybody paid in cash. Occasionally, there was someone who paid by check. But if you ever, ever, ever saw someone paying with some kind of credit card, this was in the 1970s, I mean, the whispers out in the parking lot were, what's wrong with the Smiths? What's wrong with them? I mean, they had to put their groceries on a credit card. Holy it's cow. Amazing how uh, that's totally changed. Cause now people go to parties and they brag about, oh, I paid my my groceries with my American Express card and I get points. Right. And that's again, like you see these commercials where like the group of friends is out to eat and then uh, the one of them like pays for it or whatever because they want to get all the points. Uh, so the banks definitely have encouraged this uh, environment where points are, uh, you know, sought after and, and people will hop around from card to card to obtain them. Uh, final point that kind of is important too. this, this idea of like hopping from card to card based on annual offers or to avoid, uh, the annual fee right. associated with some of these cards. Uh, because if somebody like, if you're doing that, that's, that's great and everything. Uh, if you're doing it responsibly and beating the system, terrific. Uh, but just at, something to keep in mind is that if you're going to be applying for something like a mortgage or anything that requires a, uh, credit check, if you're closing lines of credit uh, and changing companies, there, there, there are going to be ramifications in the short term on your credit score uh, because you're, you know, opening tons of you lines. Of so many, you know, if you have so many inquiries on your credit mm -hmm. uh, accounts, that's a problem, right? At least to my knowledge, that could have a negative impact on on what's sure. going on in terms of uh, your credit score. So something to keep in mind, like if you're gonna buy a house over the next couple of months and you're trying to avoid some annual fee on a credit card, it may be better just to 
bite the bullet and pay your $300 or whatever the heck they're going to charge you because if it ends up costing you in terms of uh, the interest rate you get on your mortgage, I think that's going to be more expensive over the long term. Just one last thing on credit cards. My very first credit card, I know I mentioned this in a previous podcast, my very first credit card was a Sears credit card. And the reason why I wanted a Sears card was because I was going to CW Post and there was a Sears in Hicksville on Route 110 and they had gas pumps Hmm. in front of their store. Mm -hmm. So I knew that I could get gas for my 1979 Chevy Chevette and I could get to work in Syosset and get back to class at CW Post for, uh, for school. But Sears... Here we go. Stocks trading like it's gone for good. Hmm. And, you know, Sears and Kmart are now... Actually, Kmart bought Sears, but they kept the Sears name when they repackaged it as Sears Holding. I guess that was 2002 or 2003. So for the last 15 or so years, it's been Sears and Kmart. And we mentioned earlier in this podcast about how Sears bought and then later spun off um, Colwell Banker. Allstate Insurance, and Dean Witter, which became Morgan Stanley. A lot of value carved out of Sears. They also had Kmart. And I think a lot of people overlooking, it's easy to remember Stocks and Socks and Dean Witter and all that stuff. But Kmart also owned, it's not uh, Barnes & Noble, um, I think it was Borders Books. Okay. And uh, they owned the Sports Authority. Right. Which they carved out. And there was another company, pretty good size, that they uh, carved out. All of these companies, these were the aggregators in the 70s and 80s. And everybody, I know, I know that this was a previous podcast topic. Everybody talks about how Amazon put Kmart and Sears out of business. They didn't. They, they Sears and Kmart just refused to innovate and continue to make changes. Mm-hmm. Too bad. Yeah. There's going to be a lot written, a lot of ink spilled over the... Uh, over 2019, about uh, how retailers and Sears, in particular, have gone down the drain. A lot of uh, a lot of financial engineering from uh, guys upstairs at companies like those two, as opposed to, like you said, growth. But at a certain point, you get the, these giant companies. Like, what are they supposed to do to grow? But right. I guess in hindsight, it it probably could have been. Uh, getting on the internet. <laughs> it's funny because Sears really was the Amazon of its day in the sense that they first started with the catalog business. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, I forget the guy's name, he convinced Sears and Roebuck that he he wanted to open up a, like an outlet uh, for these stores, uh, the, the, to build the stores that they were so they could sell all the merchandise that they had. And, I mean, that thing just exploded. So they were pioneers in the sense that they started a catalog when really there was nothing else out there. And then they started the stores, which no one had done, and they institutionalized the business. So they really were doing Amazon-type work, but I think they kind of lost their way. Yeah, I Too mean, bad. how long can you keep up that kind of a trajectory? Good question. Right? Because every decade has these companies that were the new thing innovating and then eventually uh, they have to reach some kind of an end game because I mean you can look at the biggest companies from every decade and they're not the same in many cases. Even if a company spans a couple of them, they tend to fall off the map at some point. Well, uh, again, one more story before we turn off the mics. Uh, I'm reading James Clear 
Um, Atomic Habits. Atomic Habits. And there's a chapter where he talks about uh, this guy, Patterson, who um, had a, a store and he found out that his employees were stealing from him. So he actually found someone who built a cash register. This is in the 1870s. Mm-hmm. And he bought two for his store and the pro- his profits were realized immediately. People stopped stealing from him. Mm-hmm. And he actually shifted his business model, bought the patent for these cash registers, and he started a company called National Cash Register. So when I got started in the business, I didn't know that it was called National Cash Register. I just knew the stock as NCR. Mm-hmm. That was this huge company. And then NCR was eventually bought out in 1990 or 91 by IBM. And so it's interesting to see how these companies get peeled off, merged into other companies, get spun out again. There's actually a lot of uh, a lot of interesting family trees or or um, company trees. Right? Company trees, I guess we should call it. <laughs> uh, just showing like where these companies all morphed uh, from. Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff. Yeah, but not for anymore in episode two thirty eight. Yeah, I that's, think that I think that's uh, that's enough for first episode of the new year. Don't want to don't want to burden people with too much here. Good way to start. Yeah. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next one. <laughs>